All right, everyone. Today's episode is brought to you by our wonderful public school system here in Prescott, Arizona. The Prescott Unified School District has been serving children for over 150 years. And while the community and district has grown and changed considerably since 1868, the commitment to children, families, and the community remains the same to this day. PUSD welcomes all students, including those who live outside the district boundaries, because at Prescott Unified School District, every child, every day, Everywhere matters. Proceeds from your membership and our advertisers with Raven Productions goes directly to supporting the arts programs in the PUSD. the Creative Convergence, an audible nexus of the creative arts. I'm your host, Candace Devine. Join me in conversation as we discuss the journey creatives take on their path to success. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Today, we have an extraordinary guest, and I am so excited to share our conversation with you. In a recording career that spans nearly three decades, saxophonist Dave Cause has racked up an astoundingly impressive array of honors and achievements. Nine Grammy nominations, 11 number one albums on Billboard's current contemporary jazz albums chart, numerous world tours, 13 sold-out Dave Cause and Friends at Sea cruises, performances for multiple U.S. presidents, a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and appearances on a multitude of television shows, including Good Morning America, The View, The Tonight Show, Entertainment Tonight, and more. A platinum-selling artist, Dave Cause is also known as a humanitarian, an entrepreneur, a radio host, and an instrumental music advocate. Please enjoy this episode, and if you'd like to learn more about Dave Cause, please see our show notes for links to his social media accounts and his website. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. I am so excited to introduce you to today's guest. I have been mildly stalking him for a very long time. (laughs) We have quite a a few friends in common, and uh, my face lit up like a Christmas tree when I found out he was willing to come on the podcast. Please welcome Dave Cause. How are you doing, Dave? I'm doing great. Now, we have to talk about a restraining order for that uh, stalking that you've been doing. (laughs) I'm not a weirdo, uh, I promise. At least for right now, I'm not willing to press charge it. I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, let's <laughs> let's start at the very beginning. I'm so happy to be here. I've heard. Can I just say? I, I just want to say at the, at the uh, outset that I've heard so many lovely things about you. So oh, well, it thank goes, you. Uh, I've been quietly stalking you as well, Candace. <laughs> so I'm very very happy to be uh, on the show. Well, thank, thank you. For you. I'm I'm so excited to dive in because I want to know as many things as you're willing to share. Let's start at the very beginning. Little Dave Cause, where were you born? What's your family dynamic like? Who are your parents, your siblings, anything of that nature? I was born in uh, the San Fernando Valley of Los Angeles, uh, suburban, you know, nice Jewish boy from the valley, as they say. I uh, spent most of my growing up years in a place called Tarzana, Mm -hmm. uh, which is right there in the west part of the valley. And I have, um, I'm the youngest of three kids. I have an older sister who's in the middle and an older brother. And my parents, who are both passed, um, and they kind of passed kind of young, both of them. My dad was 68. My mom was uh, 73. That is young. um, Which is really interesting because they were such, they were both very larger than life. And um, 
So they're very much a part of my life. Maybe some would argue even more now than they were when they were actually here. I involve them in, in everything and they, uh, I'll tell you about another uh, aspect of how they, their spirits are very much alive uh, in the business that my brother and sister and I share right now. But um, we had a really great upbringing. Uh, my parents were both in the medical world. My dad was a dermatologist. My mom was a pharmacist. Oh, wow. Uh, and all three kids, Candace, all three kids went into the music business. I was just going to say, so, I mean, you know, you come from this kind of scientific medical, although music and science and math tend to go hand in hand, but um, it sounds like you guys were the the forefront of the musical aspect of your family. Well, my mom was very musical. She used to write songs, play piano. She forced my brother and oh, sister okay. to take piano lessons when we were just barely uh crawling. Good mama left. Uh, we ha hated it, of course. Uh, but I always think about my parents because my, my mom and dad were born and raised in a place called Winnipeg, Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, where the uh, average temperature in the, in the wintertime is like minus 30. <laughs> and my dad hated the cold. He was like miserable He's in like, the cold weather. Get me to California where it's sunny 99% of the time. Exactly. And they moved to uh, California when, uh, before I was born. My, my brother was the only one that was born before they moved. And I always think about that because the fact that they made that uh, sacrifice yeah. and they made that huge move, uprooting their, their family and, and moving to, to another country, let alone uh, another city, um, that the, the, if I grew up in, in Winnipeg, I think about this all of us, grew up in Winnipeg and they didn't make that move. There's absolutely no way that I would be here talking with you. Uh, nor would have this career that I've been blessed to have. So I really am grateful to them for making that sacrifice at a very early age. Isn't it funny how we evolve and as our journey unfolds and as the things that we learn and grow into and, and the way we settle into our skin, it offers this opportunity to reflect and really appreciate how something that seems so small in a gesture, it's like, oh, my parents moved. But you nailed it on the head. It changed the whole trajectory of what would then become your life quite feasibly, singularly in just that one gesture. But we have all of those. On Every single person has those change agents. There are people that show up at, at just the right point in your life and they bring you to another place or maybe see something in you that you didn't see. And, and all of a sudden a light bulb goes off and your life has changed for. And it could be something very, very small that becomes an absolutely important pivot point in one's life. Um, a person comes to mind like that is a, a, a musician named Jeff Lorber. Mm -hmm. And Jeff Lorber is an incredible uh, keyboardist, producer. And I auditioned to be in his band in 1986. I had just graduated from college and I was a nervous wreck. And uh, I go over to his house and we played a, a little bit and he says – as soon as he stopped playing, he said, yeah, hey, man, I want to talk to you about recording some music, writing some music, because you should have your own record deal. I, I was like, what? What did you, what did you just say? And I, <laughs> forget all, about wait, the fact that you didn't tell me that I had the gig. You're like, repeat that. You didn't that. tell me that I had the gig either. You know? it's like, <laughs> You're not hiring me, but you want to help me? Or are you hiring me? <laughs> right. That was my next question. So he said, yes, you got the gig and I want to write some songs with you and get you signed to a record deal. And I just, I thought he was smoking crack or something. I was so like, what the hell just happened? But he did do that. We That's wrote a incredible. bunch of songs and those early demos got me signed to Capitol Records in the late 80s. And so if it wasn't for him, he was like the, the epitome of a change agent. He saw something 
in me that I didn't know was there because yeah. I was not at all on that wavelength. And he nurtured me and made it happen. So that's incredible. A product of, a product of uh, Jeff Lorber's uh, that's the heart and soul. Guidance, that came yeah. That, that's such, I love hearing that story. And, and I couldn't agree with you more. There are people that just come into your life at the right moment that help you see things in yourself maybe you weren't even really ready to recognize. I do want to go back just for a minute, though. In your in your formative younger years, at what point you were playing piano, you know, your mom was like, you're going to learn an instrument. When did you go, piano, eh, horn? Like, <laughs> how, how did, and and young Dave emerging in, in that kind of teen, preteen era, going into high school, you know, where was your mind at with making a life in the arts? Had you even considered that? Or were you like, oh, I love this, and then mom and dad will tell me to go do whatever, and I'll do whatever? Well, I think for the most part, I hated uh, piano when I was a kid. It was absolutely uh, the most boring thing in the world. So when I was around 10, uh, I rebelled against my parents <clears throat> and took up uh, what every kid would do to rebel against their parents, the drum set. <laughs> I feel you on that one. Old. And I was an even worse drummer than I was piano player. <laughs> and I remember, this is a true story, Candice. My dad came to pick me up at uh, my drum lesson one time, and he... Uh, so he comes to pick me up and the drum teacher was there uh, and I was there, but I was maybe a couple feet away from, from them. And um, the drum teacher took my dad and just said, look, you know, you might want to think about sports for Dave because it's just not going to happen with the drums. And I heard that. <clears throat> I was crushed. I was like, oh, my God, here's the second instrument that I'm trying and I'm even worse at this. And so it wasn't until I was 13 years old that I picked up the saxophone and that was going into seventh grade. And um, it was at the urgence of my older brother who was doing weddings. He had a band that was doing weddings and bar mitzvahs and fraternity parties and stuff like that. And one, I just wanted to be in the band, you know, like a typical younger brother. I yeah. was driving crazy. Please put me in the band. Please put in the band. Of course, I didn't play an instrument. <laughs> He's like, you got to find one you can hang on to, buddy. <laughs> uh, one day, just to get me off my, off his back, he said, look, you're never going to get in this band, but the only way that you could do it is if you pick up a saxophone because we don't have a sax player. And this was during the 80s or maybe, no, late 70s, I should say, when every pop song had, had sax saxophone player. in it. I was talking about that with somebody the other day. I was like, it's just so funny, the eras of music and what trends. And right. there is a time, especially like kind of late 70s into the 80s, where all popular music has a sax solo or at least horn parts or something wind-related happening right. in those tracks. And they had this band that was doing these, these uh, society functions without a saxophone player. And I'm sure that they got hit up every weekend saying, you know, where's the sax, where's the sax solo in this particular song, whether it's just the way you are, Billy Joel. Right. Or <laughs> so finally, he said, the only way that you're going to get into this band is if you play the sax. Um, and that's all I heard. And I was going into seventh grade at the time. I picked up the saxophone. Now, admittedly, Candice, it was a different experience with the saxophone immediately. It was almost like discovering another part of my body or something. It was very natural. It felt like a kinship, like a musical kinship immediately. Yeah. That I didn't have with the piano or with drums before. So um, I took that as a good sign. I practiced my, my butt off for two years every single day, driving my brother crazy until one day 
he just relented. You know, he just <laughs> had enough of me and he said, okay, I'll pay you $10 to come to this wedding in Woodland Hills, California. And you can, uh, we can give you a little audition to be in that band. And I did. And I passed the audition and I started, uh, at 15 years old, working every weekend. That's how I got my experience. Wow. And another, you know, important person in your life that just set a bar for you in a sense. I mean, obviously it's a natural talent and something that you've, you know, resonated with, but it's just so funny that that, it's funny what kids do with goals when they want something badly enough. And to be in Big Brother's band obviously had a lot of influence on that effort that you were putting out. Well, not only did they not have to have a job, like a grunt job that every all of their friends were having working at, you know, flipping burgers or working in a supermarket or something like that, but they got to play music on the weekends. You know? totally. So they had their weeks free to do whatever they wanted. And on Saturday, Friday and Saturday, maybe Sunday sometimes, they would do weddings and bar mitzvahs and they made a lot of money. And and for me it was an amazing thing because I was playing with people who were much better musicians than I was. So I got a chance to uh, basically get real life experience in front of people with great musicians every weekend. And it, it made me get better quicker. I think that's so invaluable. I think whenever you are, whether it's self-identified or other people are letting you know, I think when you're the weakest link in the batch, you're going to progress at such great levels because you, if you have the desire to keep up with what you want to be a part of, you know, I think versus being the badass in the band that knows, knows everything in quotes, you know, and not being pushed in the same way to grow, you know? So I think for a young Dave cause, that was probably, and just sound, just by this, the, the sounds of your determination, probably having, you know, that kind of level with you was in and of itself, probably a, a determining fact of getting better. Well, I had a lot to prove to, like a lot of kids. I took up the saxophone at 13. My head was exploding. My face was exploding with acne. <laughs> Excuse me. I was, I was very overweight. I was an uncomfortable kid. I was dealing with a lot of emotional baggage that I had no, uh, no vehicle to express it through. Uh, I grew up, um, you know, I'm gay. So I, I was starting to kind of have these things enter my mind. Like what's going on with me? What's, the way that I feel is different from the way that everybody else feels, and I don't see any uh, reinforcement in the in in the public uh, eye of of the way that I'm feeling. So it just it made me retreat, and uh, I just kind of became a, a like a a very um, a retreated person. The saxophone gave me confidence. It gave me uh, some some self-worth actually, you know, yeah. because I felt so bad about myself growing up and I had no one to talk to. So the, the saxophone was my, was my vehicle for, to get the feelings that were out that didn't have words. Cause I didn't, I couldn't come up with words to, to, to describe what I was feeling inside. So really it became like my most trusted ally, my best friend. I could tell it anything. It was always there for me. And the fact is that I was good at it Yeah. so that I, I kind of, develop some confidence. Like, okay, well maybe I'm gay and I, I'm really not happy with that. <laughs> I can't, I don't have no idea what's going to happen the rest of my life, but Hey, I can play the sax. So I, it just, it if, was, you, it was, if you don't mind me asking, because I know we have a lot of young listeners and that's something that I'm super passionate about, um, is 
you know, letting young people hear these personal journeys and stories so that they don't feel alone and that creativity is a great outlet for the arts. From my standpoint of where I'm sitting, it sounds like you had a supportive family, um, a, a kind environment. It doesn't it doesn't sound as though you had people that would reject you or hurt you, but even still, in coming into your own and in that time of identity and learning who you are, ha- having that music and that instrument to lean on is such a profound thing. Did you have a hard time being open with your family about these, about the emotions, about the things you were feeling, about the evolution of who you were becoming? I didn't come out to my family uh, for many, many years later. It was a very different time. That's right. what I think. Uh, kids growing up today, now I, I don't necessarily say that it's easier now, but it's a different game now. Yeah. There's so many positive reflections in society today that if you're growing up and you're gay or lesbian or transgender or, you know, uh, on the spectrum, whatever it is that, that it is, there's a lot of resources that are available to younger people and older people now that weren't there before. And I had it better than the, the generation that came before me. Yeah. Very, uh, you know, respective of, of the fact that, that I had it better than many other people. Yeah. But I think that you, that it, it is a, a process. And for me, it just took a long time getting comfortable within my own skin. And it wasn't until my, until I was in college that I came out to my family and they were wonderful. They were yeah. absolutely as, as, <laughs> as great as you could ever imagine. And I kept kicking myself for like waiting that long, but I wasn't ready to, to uh, deliver that information until I was ready to do it. And then I came out publicly. There's a different thing between coming, coming out personally in your, in your own life with your family, even um, with my coworkers, band members and management stuff that all, that all happened um, along the way. But I, then when I turned 40, I actually came out publicly, uh, in a magazine called the advocate, which is sort of like the gay Mm -hmm. world time magazine. And that was putting finally, uh, at my 40th year, putting all the cards on the table and fully inhabiting my mind, body, spirit. And it was the best thing that I ever did in my life. And, um, but I, I, I'll, I will say this, you know, that was my time for doing it. Everybody's on their own time clock and there's no right time to do it. You just have to know in your heart that that's, that's, I, I just was not willing to, uh, play with not a full deck anymore. Right. I just, I wasn't willing to do that anymore. Right. And you're talking about something that is an innately personal. I mean, who we go home with in the dark is our private business. You know, I mean, it is. And that's one of those things that I think is always an interesting aspect of someone's life because it is a part of the life. It makes the whole, but it is, it is, um, something that I think you have to come to terms with in a personal way, in a personal timeline, like you said, which I think is such valid, um, information and insight on that part. All of of our lines get crossed too, the professional and personal lines and our family and, uh, professional lines. There's, there's a lot of overlap right now. And right now we're living in a time when everything, all pieces of information, uh, are out there. There was a time I've. Oh yeah, it's terrifying. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. I'm like, I'm so glad I did college when there was not cell phones and videotape and <laughs> no one needs it's to see. No one needs to see that, Candace. Yeah, so I'm it's all out there. Um, but it, I remember there was a time I laugh about this with other recording artists who are old enough. 
uh, that when we made records, when I first started, my first record came out in 1990, you would release a record, you would go and do a massive tour if you could, full-scale promotion, and then you would disappear for a year, at least. You would go away, and that was mandatory from the record companies. Go and disappear, and then ah. let them miss you and come back. And then have and the reemergence. Was, right. There yeah. is none of that. If you go away, you're, you're gone. You're gone. It's like you yeah. never happened. Right. So it's a, it's definitely a, a structural change in how we promote ourselves in the public sphere. I think it's a bit too much. I mean, I remember when there was uh, the the first days of social media, I looked at it and I said, this is never going to last. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, I remember saying specifically, um, in college when everybody was having cell phones and everything. And I was just like, I have waited 18 years to get, have my parents not be able to find me. Why are we doing this? <laughs> and I was very wrong on that too. Um, I do want to ask you, go back a little bit. So you talked about going to college. Where did you go to college and how was your musical journey happening throughout that time? I went to UCLA back when they let people like me into UCLA. Uh, I had a very, I think I had a B plus average or 3.5 GPA and maybe a thousand on my SAT. And somehow I got in. <laughs> I was a mass communications major, believe it or not, because I was really convinced that I, that's, that music was a side project for me during my uh, college years. I was, I was enjoying music and I played music on the weekends, uh, but I was not really thinking for whatever reason. I didn't think that that was a career. I was going to say, was that because uh, as a sax player, was that something that you just hadn't seen a journey of to follow? Or was that just something that it was like, ah, people don't make a living playing saxophone? I knew that pe people like David Sanborn, who was my number one idol, I memorized all of his phrasing and songs and played along with his records in my bedroom, in my hi-fi in my bedroom. Um so I knew that, that, that people could have uh, very successful careers as instrumentalists. But for, for whatever reason, I think it's a confidence thing. I just thought, well, what am I going to say? It's interesting, mm. though, looking back on those years um, and kind of uh, picking up from when we were talked about being gay, I think that there's – I've questioned this to, my, to myself and to anybody who would entertain me asking it uh, to them as well. Like, why would I have a career? There are so many people who play the saxophone so well, way better than I play it. I'm not trying to diminish what my, uh, my contribution is, but I just know there's a lot of people that play it really, really well and that are fighting tooth and nail to get ahead in the business. Why do people want to listen to me? And I think that, you know, I've thought about it. And I think that those early days when I picked up the horn for the first time, the DNA of the sound is coming from a place of, um, and take this with a grain of salt because I make music that is pretty uh, affirmational and, and full of life and happy. Some would describe as happy, but I think there's a lot of pain in the sound that is recognizable on a, on a subconscious level because that's what was going on in, mm. in my life at the time and in the making of the sound. This is esoteric stuff. I no, I love it. Out. This is what we all live for. It's the, okay. it's, the journey, it's the thing that makes you tick. That's the stuff we don't get to hear about very often. Yeah. So please continue. Well, I just think that the sound that was made, my sound is has a lot of raw emotion in it because that's the way it started. It was dealing with all the crazy shit that was going on inside of my body and my brain. And I had to get it out somehow. Yeah. 
here was a, a sound that encompassed all of those emotions. And even though the music that I make uh, is is very, you know, it's just up music. I would call it pretty up music. But inside of the sound, there's something that people recognize because the human existence. I don't know one person, one human being on this planet that hasn't experienced some kind of pain. It's a, it's part of all of our DNA. So I think there's something in the sound that people recognize subconsciously that they respond to. That's that's why I feel like I have a career. I I I'm sure there's lots of reasons you have a career, but I would agree with that sentiment. I think as humans, we're complex and we're drawn to complexities. And even if something on the surface sounds up or polished or happy, when a heartstring is pulled at that is authentic, that heartstring of pain can can find, resonate, hear, believe, touch, see, you know, embody that heartstring as well. I've been blown away, Candice, uh, during the pandemic this year, 2020. I've been blown away. I've been, listen, I, I have a life that revolves around music and my um, appreciation and humility towards music is is off the charts and always has been. I'm so continually blown away by the power of music to to communicate, and especially in difficult times. But this year, my God, I noticed immediately when the pandemic happened. Like I went right to music. Yeah, I went right to my feel good music heroes because I was feeling like crap and yeah. everyone around me was feeling like crap and so it was in those very dark moments that you put on your favorite song and all of a sudden you see some glimmer of hope yeah. music still i mean this year especially for so many people that's why i made the 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 album um a new day i know purpose was to just create uh hopefully some comfort for people during this very uncomfortable year and i definitely want to get to that album and and discuss it because it's worth talking about. Um, but before we jump there, I do want to pick up a little bit post-college and into, into your professional life, into that moment we just talked about, about why don't we write some songs together and get you a record deal? Um, because for, for me, for someone learning about you from you, knowing the evolution to the person we all see in a public, you know, um, setting, it's, I think there's so many gems in there. So when you had that conversation and you're playing and you're auditioning for a band just to have, you know, cool gig and to be working and playing sax, did you have an aha moment if somebody was coming to you going, I think we can do this? Did you have a I'm not worthy moment? Did you have a Holy shit! <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, what, how how did that section of your life unfold from you from an inside perspective? I, I it's such a great question, and uh, wow, how do I answer that one? <laughs> I think that there were bits of everything. There was definitely an aha moment. Um, I remember the one before I even encountered Jeff Lorber. Uh, how I met Jeff Lorber was because I was playing with this guy named Bobby Caldwell. Bobby Caldwell was uh, is wonderful singer, R and B singer. Put together a new band. I auditioned. I got in the band, and I was just out of college. And uh, Bobby uh, was kind enough to put me in the band. And here we were. We're on our first gig. It's a place called At My Place in Santa Monica, 
sadly no longer there, but that was such a fantastic place to see live music. We had a two show night. The first show we finished, every song of his had a sax solo, right? So I was very busy during the show, but I was playing in, in my spot on the stage. I was a sideman. I was yeah. playing and I didn't, I, I, you know, it's his show. So the, the first show ends and he says to me kind of angrily, Dave, I need to talk to you. I'm like, holy shit. I'm going to get fired from my first gig <laughs> before the second show. I don't even get to do the second show. <laughs> so, I, so now we're backstage. Bobby's like yelling at me. He said, what are you doing, man? I was like, uh, what do you mean? He said, well, I'm singing the song. And then when it times the sax solo, I'm moving off to the, off the front of the stage. And I'm giving you the front of the stage to come up there and play the sax solo. Take over. And I was like, well, you didn't tell me that that's what you wanted me to do. And I didn't know. And I'm not, I'm not going to, you know, it's your show. I'm not going to overtake you and, you know, push my way to the front of the stage. He said, <laughs> well, you better change it in the second show or you're, or you're not going to have a third show. And I was like, oh, my God. So anyway, after the second show, he said, he pulls me aside. He said, you might want to dial it back a bit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, thank you for taking direction, but also you took it a step too far. <laughs> Okay, everyone, today's episode was recorded at and brought to you by Raven Sound Studio in historic downtown Prescott, Arizona. Raven Sound Studio is a professionally equipped audio production facility offering recording, mixing, and mastering services throughout northern Arizona and surrounding areas. Whether you are looking to cut a demo, record your next single, or have a full album produced, Raven Sound Studio has the tools and skills you need to get the job done. For more information, head to www.ravensoundstudio.com to book a session or schedule a tour. So he, um, you know, I think what he did was he unleashed something inside of me that, that I didn't know was there, which was, oh, you know, I love performing. Yeah. When you say the aha moments, that was definitely an aha moment because I'd never done anything like that before. And I thought the thrill that came from entertaining people and I can do it with this instrument and I can produce an effect in this audience just by blowing through this piece of metal. It was kind of like, wow. Uh, I acknowledge maybe the, for the first time the true power that I could have with this instrument, and not a not a you know a, a power that's unwieldy that I want to use for, for <laughs> world domination. World, but, yeah, but, <laughs> <laughs> you're like I'm, I'm taking it all over. <laughs> Right. It's a, it was an authentic power that I could use for good because I saw that it it made people happy and it, and it brought smiles to people's faces and they were inspired in some capacities. So it was, that was a great moment. And I've had so many moments like that. I've been able to travel all over the world and see the music connect uh, to different cultures too. Yeah, That's one of the things about instrumental music is there's no barriers of language that you could take it anywhere in the world. And if people are open to hearing it, they're going to be moved by it in some way. Now I have to ask though, and forgive me for interrupting you, but I want to keep you on time and I, I want to pull these beautiful gems out of you. Um, I have to ask at this point in your life, cause I know your, your parents passed kind of early. Were they watching this? Like, Oh my gosh, our, my, our, our boy, like, look at him. I, were you, did you get him a moment in time with them to acknowledge this emergence of creativity and, love for an instrument and finding kind of this sincerity in your path of what, what from an outside perspective, what I believe you were born to do. 
one of my favorite pictures uh, from my in, in every picture of my family was uh, backstage at the Hollywood Bowl, which is a very iconic for, for your listeners uh. that may know about the Hollywood Bowl. It's like you know, it's the Los Angeles version of Carnegie Hall. Yeah, it's the creme de la creme. <laughs> Just the place. And I remember my very first time playing there was with Jeff Lorber in his band. My parents were there backstage. And I look at that photo a lot because this was before any of my my own career happened. They beamed their smiles in that shot that their son, because they used to take my brother and sister and I to the Hollywood Bowl as a family to see other shows. And now their son uh, was on stage there. So it was a very special moment. And my parents were, as long as they could, uh, were involved in every aspect. My mom was, she made these chocolate chip cookies when we were young and the chocolate chip cookies, um, she made for Capitol records every Christmas season. And I believe those chocolate chip cookies, uh, inspired the worker bees at Capitol to spend a little extra time on Dave Cotts. (laughs) She was a smart woman. She knew. Very smart woman. It's, it's a good way to get to get what you want through the belly, through the sweets in the belly. I remember too that my dad came, my mom and dad came to one show at this uh, pretty great, uh, re- uh, <clears throat> excuse me, venue in San Diego called Humphreys by the Bay. If anybody's listening from San Diego, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So my dad came, my mom came. My mom was a Jewish, you know, my, I grew up in a Jewish family. And my mom was a typical Jewish mother, always wanted to feed people. That yeah. was what she did. So she would bring her knishes or her kugels or her mm. cookies. And so she came to the venue and she was feeding all the fans. And my dad came to the road manager before the show started and asked him for a bunch of backstage passes because he was a total flirt. <laughs> he would to, come to my shows and like give backstage passes to the, to the hottest chicks there. <laughs> and, I came back. My mom is nowhere to be found after the show. I just finished show. I'm drenched in sweat. And I come back. First person I see uh, backstage is my dad surrounded by a bevy of gorgeous women. (laughs) And he says, oh, Dave, come on in. Meet my friends. Right in front of my mom, too, who was oblivious because she was so busy trying to feed people. This is what I was dealing with. She's like, ah, he's fine. It keeps him busy. (laughs) I got work to do. I got to feed people. This was my life for the for the years that they were around for my career, but it was very very funny. Oh, they I were loved big, it! Big, 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 big supporters and loved it, and were very, very involved. And never, ever once did I ever hear, especially coming from a Jewish family, there's a lot of expectations that Jewish parents have on their kids. Never once did I ever hear about a plan B or you should have a backup plan or this oh, is not. Oh, that's wonderful. You know, they were very, very supportive of my brother and sister and I in our endeavors to follow our own bliss and not do, uh, not go down the same road that they went down, for example. Yeah, that's incredible and so valuable. Those Just hearing that, I have a son who's five, and I similarly have my father's Jewish, my mom's not, but a, a very culturally Jewish family, but m- very similarly supportive of any endeavor I've ever done. And I think it's such a valuable thing to remind humans of is that the individual journey is important. And although we want our children to grow up to be quote unquote successful, or we want them to have their feet well planted and a roof over the head, it is important to allow someone to evolve, to be who they're meant to be, you know, and find themselves. And so I give your parents a lot of kudos for that because clearly it worked out just fine for you. Um, Let's talk really quickly about getting that first record deal. 
and having to now not be a side man and having to come to the table with your own creations, your own inner musical voice, your own, how did you, one, I mean, now you're signed, you know, so that's huge, but did you feel any pressure or nervousness about now becoming the the guy in the front of the stage? I think everything, because it was so new and I didn't really have any context for it and I didn't ask for it. I mean, that's one of the things that gets me a little screwed up sometimes when I think about it, because I watch these young artists and they are so passionate. They can't even imagine doing anything other than their art. And they sit in practice rooms and work on their crafts. And uh, I never really did that. So sometimes it plays with my head. Like, how did this all happen if it really was not? You know, I, if you look at it on a surface, I've worked really hard for this, but in some ways it sort of just fell into my lap. All of a sudden I was signed to Capitol Records. I had this big deal. I was trying to get the, the, the Capitol Re- the iconic Capitol Records tower in Hollywood, getting all those offices to take me seriously. I had a pretty high po- profile manager at the time who would work the, the, the building to, to get attention for, for me. But I think we were all just like, going, how did we get here? And maybe what we could do is just have enough success that I could make a second album. That was really my goal was let's just have enough success here uh, to make a second album. One thing that I had going for me, Candice, was that like, uh, unlike other artists who toil in their creative life for years before they get that that, uh, record deal for that first time, and then you have a lifetime of music that you put into that first record and then a very little bit of lifetime to make your second record with. Uh, I didn't do that uh, because I was not writing songs before. Really, I wasn't writing my own music before I got signed. So I wrote everything for that album. And then that was what the journey was for me is instead of kind of using out uh, songs that were uh, honed over long, long periods of time. So I think the whole thing was rather a, a, a weird experiment that we just kind of went in with both feet and tried to have as much fun as possible. Some things happened that were crazy weird um, on that first album. Uh, and one was one thing that comes to mind is that one song from the album became a smash hit in a country called Malaysia. <laughs> <laughs> I've never even heard of Malaysia at the time. And we get the inter- the international department says, we've got a number one song with a song called Emily from Dave Cause. Can you send him over? And this, I, I went over to, to, to Malaysia, Kuala Lumpur. I remember getting off the plane and uh, I'm at baggage claim and I'm looking around and I see literally like 200 young girls, young Malaysian girls. Um, and I thought, God, I was on on the plane with some sort of superstar. I wonder who it is. <laughs> and they were there for me. It was the strangest, weirdest thing. You're like, thing. I'm the Beatles of Malaysia. <laughs> That's <laughs> incredible. started a love affair with Southeast Asia. Yeah. Uh, I've been to pretty much every country in that region of the world. And, uh, and I've been going back ever since. And yeah. the same thing can be said of South Africa and Europe and, and, um, other places around the world, it's just been a really wonderful kind of magic carpet ride. And when you think about a, a saxophone player from the San Fernando Valley whose music is 
all of a sudden popular in Malaysia. It's, it's just incredible. Head scratch. Well, and you brought you brought this up a, a, just a short bit ago, but what an incredible seat to sit in to be able to experience, just like you said, the universal language of of music itself, regardless of language and, and actual lyrics or any, but the instrumental heart that transcends anywhere on the globe. And to be in the front seat of that and driving that train and being able to give that energy and reciprocate that energy globally is pretty damn good there, Mr. Cause. I mean, that's... That's a, there's not a whole lot of people that get to sit in that front seat and do what you get to do and take in that kind of energy. I mean, that's just incredible. Um, I'll give you um, even one better. My first time to Cape Town, South Africa, playing the Cape Town Jazz Festival, 5,000 people, uh, Cape Townians. And when I would be playing my melodies, which don't have lyrics, 5,000 thousand people sang along to the melodies and even sang along to the solos that were on the record. This is, these are kind of like the magical experiences of, of my life. And I've had so many of them. I feel so blessed that I've been able to have so many of these like pinch me. Am I actually experiencing this or is this a wild dream that I'm going to wake up from? I've had so many of those experiences over the years. So uh, continue. I was going to say, allow me to ask you because I think Another thing you brought up that I think is so brilliantly fascinating is that basically as your listeners, we've been allowed to evolve and grow with you. Like you said, so many artists are in the bars or in the clubs or and they're honing their craft and they're getting better with their songwriting or they're getting better with their, you know, um, vision of how they want their music to come out to the world. And you're kind of learning this experience on the job in a sense and evolving your creative juices. Would you say there is a particular album where you can equate in your life, like when you listen to your own music, does it take you on a journey of these of highs or lows or lefts and rights that, you know, you can go, Oh man, that album, that was, whoo, that was a tough one. Like, I'm glad I got it out, but ha, you know, or are there ones that you're just like, Oh my gosh, best year of my life Uh on a, on a, you know, a, a career is like stepping stones. Yeah. And it's not a straight line ever. I've never known anybody for it to be a straight line for. Uh, for me, when you ask that question, I think about this album that I, it was my third album. I had to make it. There was no question I was going to make it. I heard this sound in my head. Um, it was coming off of a gold record yeah. uh, that I had with Lucky Man, which was a massive uh, success. I moved up here to where I'm talking to you from, uh, Sausalito, California. Oh, it's so beautiful there. In the same place that I am right now. Uh, this was in the mid-90s. And I heard this sound. I made this record. And it was absolutely couldn't have been a bigger flop. It was <laughs> a flop. And I was so I don't know. Hurt. That will always be funny to me coming from the artists themselves. <laughs> I gave it my but all I, and it just tanked. <laughs> I would kill to sell. It's still, the massive flop still sold 200,000 records. I would kill for 200,000 records. <laughs> but it, it allowed me making that album and also have uh, working with a, a company like Capital that was very much an um, artist development oriented label that was not was okay with like if you want to try something and it doesn't work okay well then then the next time you know from what you experience and, and that's exactly what happened because of the that was called off, off the beaten path that album 
because of that and the experience that I had with that, I was able to make um, the next album, which was called The Dance. And that was uh, by far my most successful album of all time. So I think, you know, it's like a, it, it's it's not any one project. It's really about the winding road. And what you just said about the audience is something that I t- take very um, much to heart is that in this format of music, we have a very loyal and very dedicated audience that is willing to kind of go with you on the side trips. Yeah. My, my whole life is, is the side streets. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm going down this thoroughfare and I feel like, <laughs> Oh, I, I'm, I'm going somewhere. I have a vision of where I'm going and here we go. And it's always, Oh, what's, Oh, this looks like a cool street. Let me go down here and make a left, sharp left turn. Takes me to another whole thing, and that's where the 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 joy and the juice of life is. Yeah, in these side street experiences. I couldn't agree with you more. That's oh, I love it. I um, I'm tr- I'm just keeping my eye on the clock to uh, to respect your time. For the people listening, this man is very busy, and rightfully so because he's a brilliant genius mastermind. Oh. Uh, of of glory and um i'm just so excited to have you so i want to get in a couple more questions before i have to let you go um post in in your in your label journey in your career journey you started the summer horns tours when did that start and how did that get cultivated and where in your mind did this brew from? And tell us a little bit about that experience because that's kind of a, not that it's a left turn as a performer, but it's one of those kind of side streets of like, this might be fun. That was just it really. Yeah. It was uh, probably inspired most by my love of certain kinds of music. Uh, that I didn't, uh, most of my albums were with the exception of maybe one and a couple of Christmas albums. It was all original material, but I had such deep respect and admiration for all the horn bands that I grew up listening to, whether it was Tower of Power, Chicago, Earth, Wind and Fire, Cool and the Gang. Uh, I mean, I can go on and on and on. That that to me was the golden era of music and all those bands, um, from the late 60s to late 70s, just ruled the airwaves and the music was so hot. And uh, I had this idea of like putting together some some horn players and and taking on those songs and doing new arrangements to the songs. So my first few calls were to uh, Mindy Hebert, our mutual mm-hmm. friend, uh, Gerald Albright, one of the greatest saxophone players on the earth, uh, and Richard Elliott, same thing. Uh, the, all three had completely... Uh, identifiable individual voices on their instruments, but also shared my passion for that uh, repertoire, that music. And so it was a very easy and quick yes from all of them. We went in the studio in 2013. We made our first Summer Horns album and we did two. It was a, it was just like a runaway hit immediately. It was just like people loved it because they love the music and it was uh, superstars of the format playing music that everybody knew. And so we uh, did two years of touring and then uh, kind of put that project on the side for a minute. And then a few years later, we revisited it again with a different cast and did another two years of touring. And next year, God willing, in 2021, I don't uh, don't know. Every every tour date that we book for next year <laughs> has just, an asterisk. I know. It's like, we'll see. <laughs> 2020, we'll see, asterisk. <laughs> Hopefully we will be getting a chance to do another Summer Horns tour in um, 2021. But it's it's really fun because it, it accesses a different part of my creativity 
And I love, I'm a born collaborator. I really love, if I, if I was left to my own devices working alone on everything, I'd probably just do the same shit over and over and over because yeah. I'm a creature of habit. Getting a chance to work with other musicians and specifically other horn players allows me this um, collaborative spirit to get me out of my comfort zone and into a more creative space. And I've it. seen that in songwriting. I've seen it in record making, in production, in um, and the cruises that we do. I host a, an annual cruise. I used to host an annual cruise. <laughs> <laughs> asterisk, asterisk. <laughs> and hopefully one day again. But that's, these are all collaborative um projects and i love the art of collaboration i've learned so much from other artists other creatives and um and and hopefully when we find that little subset like there's an overlap here's that person and here's me and we come together in that overlap that little subset is where it's the magic so special collaboration i i talk a lot about this with songwriters i'm like get it's wonderful to write your own brilliant things not everybody's a bob dylan but go out and meet other songwriters, meet other musicians. Let your juices be inspired by somebody else's innate stylings because you never know when those crossovers, like you say, are just going to have this magical side effect of something you couldn't have thought of on your own, you know, think of on your own. Um, I have a couple quick questions for you that I ask all my guests that I'd like to get in. Yes. With this immense, remarkable, glorious career of yours and your life journey, attached to that, guiding it, what would you tell, I don't know, maybe your 13-year-old self, your younger self, what would be your advice that you wish you had heard or that you would tell that young creature now? I, I would say have more fun. Don't take it all so seriously. And it's not, it's not as big of a deal as you're making it out to be. It's that just, is I, so I, valid. We let it's our brains just, run away with us, don't we? Yeah, it's just not, it's what is the purpose of life? Of course, you know, you want to do good things. You want to contribute. You want to make a, uh, a lasting impression of your life. But we're, we are really grains yeah. of, of sand on the beach. That's really what our lives are. So I look at it now from my vantage point and have a very different perspective. It's like, I want to enjoy it all. I want to savor every moment and not take it so seriously. And remember that this is, I'm not living my life for anybody else. I'm living it for me. Oh, so and, true. Uh, and our, this is maybe a controversial thing to say, but I do believe this, that life um, is a one man or one woman show. We come in alone and we leave alone. And the uh, lattice work of our lives intersecting with other lives that's what gives our gives meaning and 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 uh, feeling to our lives. But really, it's it's all about what we do in and of ourselves and how we make the most of this journey for us as a a, a solo flight. That really counts. I love that because I think, especially exactly right now, Asterix twenty twenty. I think we are um, in a time where self accountability is wavering. I think people are forgetting that sometimes you have to take your own, you know, bull by the horns for yourself. And and that's such a valid, beautiful point to make that it's like, if you're viewing the world as as what you build in as the lattice work, but at the end of the day, the maker of that lattice, the person building it is you. And if you're not going to honor your own commitment to your life journey, how are you going to get the life you want? You know, which I love hearing. 
Well, and it's also just taking the victimhood out of life. Yeah. Another way of saying it is that that it's not what happens to me. I'm creating my own reality and I can change it at any time. Now, these might be micro changes. Yeah. Uh, you can't necessarily do 180 overnight or you can. Yeah. But that that our lives are our own trajectories, that it's not just happening to us, that we are an active participant in the experience that we're have right now. 100% agree. I, I thank you for sharing those insights. In your incredible career full of a billion highs, I'm sure, what would you say has been a career high and a career low for you? Because it, I think people often see superstars like yourself and they just assume it's always sunshine and roses. Oh, no. Um, I think the, the career high for me always will be when I introduced my parents to the president of the United States. Based <laughs> on yeah. That, that was asked of me. Uh, if you remember, Bill Clinton was a saxophone player. And when he was running for reelection, he was the president. But he had these reelection parties uh, where they raised money. And, and the, the, uh, it was called the Saxophone Club. And every time that they had one of these uh, fundraisers, the entertainment was a saxophone player. So I got a call from the White House to play one of these events. And after the event, uh, I was able to meet the president, who I'd met before because I played at his inauguration. <laughs> uh, but I was able to, to introduce a sitting president of the United States to my parents. The leader of the free world. <laughs> Not just, that I mean, was, when you, that's a huge, that's huge. Um, that what and, uh, has been a low? Yeah. I think the low really has been, um, I haven't, you know, experiences, experienced uh, times where it was like absolutely low, low, like I couldn't get out of the, couldn't get out of a hole. Um, I think that the, if, if anything, it's just really the, the um, disappointments that come. And, but whereas disappointments were, and then there's always disappointments, they never stop. Uh, but there was a time when I couldn't handle them as well as I can handle them now. And I think that there were, uh, some times where I would feel like, you know, gosh, I just want to get this. Can I just get this to this point? And then this point, you know, it was just an uphill battle every step. Oh, so you're human. And then, yeah, <laughs> I'm so glad to know. <laughs> Yes, I, I I empathize. I would imagine most of our listeners do as well. And it it actually means a lot to hear somebody with your resume and credentials and glorious life say that because those are important things to realize. You know, we are human and we, we do have on any level mountains that seem really hard to push stones up, you know. Yeah, and, and it's just it's it's about reframing, I think. And I the, the older that I get, and I like getting older. Um I remember when I turned 30, I was freaked out. 30 was great. <laughs> 40 was even better than 30. And 50 was better than 40. Oh, good to know, because uh, I'm still in the freak out phase. So good to okay, know. <laughs> well, I'm here from your future to tell you it only gets better. Good. I'm knocking on 60 now. So I'm hoping that <laughs> I'm hoping this trend continues. And you're still stunningly beautiful. I, that's the thing about age that's so shocking to me is that when people do tell me their ages, I never ask because I don't want people to ask me. But when people do tell me their ages... I feel like people who are living in a youthful life as far as appreciating, they never look whatever age is supposed to be. Like, I always feel like they look 10 years, 15 years younger anyway, because they're just embraced in living a good life and enjoying it. Well, you look like a kid. You're a good person, Dave Cos. <laughs> <laughs> so you're enjoying your life. 
<laughs> we'll just say sure. <laughs> um, before I let you go, because I do need to let you go, um, I, he has another appointment, and I do not want him to never want to come back. So I respect I your will time. Absolutely, be coming back. Um, where should people be? I mean, I all your albums, but we have a new album dropping. Yes, did just drop. It came out in October. Okay. It's called a new day. Yeah. Uh, it was made completely under the umbrella of COVID nineteen. I made it in the pandemic, in the quarantine, actually. Uh, and it was a real challenge to do that, but everybody came forward, unbelievable guest artists and musicians and singers and engineers. And we all had this one purpose, which was to create some music that would provide some comfort during mm. this very, uh, unsettling and uh, uncomfortable time. And so that is my, my deep hope is that this, uh, album, which is very positive, which is very reflective of, of a time that I do feel is coming. Uh, I do believe that a rainbow, we're, we're almost at the end of the rainbow and it will come sometime soon. And, uh, that's what this new, this, uh, album, a new day celebrates is this, uh, moving to a new place. And, uh, we have a lot to, we've seen optimism kind of creep back a little bit in our country. Um, in the last couple of weeks, uh, we'll see if we can build upon that and hopefully we can get beyond this, uh, terrible COVID situation and start uh, re-entering the, the, our lives. I know our lives will be that asterisk again. It'll be, it won't be the same. It won't be going back to the way it was, but it'll be going hopefully to even a better place. And that's what this album is all about. Mm. Uh, I'm excited, very excited to share it with people. Wonderful. We will make sure that links to your music are up. Is Do you have a specific website or store or anywhere that people should be following you aside from socials that everybody can find you at? Yeah. Uh, DaveCos.com is my website. And uh, so you can get all the information there and find the music and find every, everything that's going on. And uh, uh, yeah, Facebook at DaveCos Music is probably the best clearinghouse. Uh, you can find me on Instagram too, but I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll save you all the handles. <laughs> Sounds good. We'll put them up for everybody to find you. I am so honored and I just adore you. And I want to talk to you for more and more hours all the time. <laughs> well, let's do it. We'll make another appointment to do it. I've enjoyed this so much. You are a fantastic host. Oh, thank you. And what makes you a fantastic host, I'm going to say this because I've done a lot of radio. <laughs> you are a great listener. You thank listen you. and respond and take conversation to another place because of it. So uh, thank you very much for having me on your show. I've oh, enjoyed it fully. Thank you. It's been my honor and pleasure. And until the next time, be safe. Have a wonderful continued journey. And we will make sure that all these people are listening to your new album. Wonderful. Thank you, Candace, so much. Take care, much. Dave. Thank you, too. All right, y'all. Today's episode is brought to you by Gray Dog Guitars, located at 141 North Cortez Street in historic downtown Prescott, Arizona. Gray Dog Guitars is an authorized tailor, Gretsch, Guild, and Reverend dealer with a friendly, knowledgeable staff and a welcoming environment. Whatever you are looking for, whether to buy, sell, or trade, Gray Dog Guitars has you covered. So stop by today and check out their great selection of new, used, and vintage gear and check them out at www.graydogguitars.com. Thank you for listening to The Creative Convergence, coming to you from Raven Sound Studio in historic downtown Prescott, Arizona. Are you a professional in the arts and would like to share your story with us or a company that would like to advertise with us? Shoot us an email at contact at ravenproductionsmedia.com. Help support the arts by becoming a Raven Productions member. 
get your perk card and be the first to know about all of our upcoming promotions, events, and online programming. Your membership will directly support the arts programs in our schools. Sign up today at ravenproductionsmedia.com. Until next time, be safe and enjoy the journey.